This project was made possible with support from California Humanities, a nonprofit partner of the National Endowment for the Humanities. Visit calhume.org. From KVPR in Fresno. On this week's The Other California, a writer with deep ties to the San Joaquin Valley talks about what it means to be bound to a place where generations define themselves by their connection to the land. And I envied him because we sold the farm before I was born, and he still had his farm, and he was passing it on to his children. And that is the love of this place, beside the hate of this place. And what it's like to actually write about that place with a journalist eye. I'm still exploring the notion that a place is not simply geography, but a spiritual relationship to that geography. It's all about untangling who you are when it feels like where you come from could take your whole life to understand. And so I'm still trying to, to figure it out and I'll probably die trying to figure it out. I'm Alice Daniel and this is El otro California. I live California, California, California. Well, I think uh, let's go ahead and kind of start and I'll move levels as we go here. How's that sound? Okay. Okay. Are we ready, Mark? Yep. Okay. As our engineer gets set up, let me tell you a little bit about Mark Arax. He's been called a 21st century John Steinbeck for his books that pry into the soul of California. He's also a two-time winner of the California Book Award, among many other accolades. His most recent work, The Dreamt Land, Chasing Water and Dust Across California, is a national bestseller and has been hailed by critics as one of the most important books ever written about the West. Mark is Armenian, and his family came here more than a century ago to escape the Armenian genocide. I've known Mark for many years, and he's someone who has helped me try to understand this place, even as he admits he's still grappling with it himself. Welcome, Mark. I'm so glad you're here. Nice to see you, Alice. I wanted to talk to you first about how I first got to know you, or know of you. You were giving a talk, I think it was with the one of the Fresno Rotary Clubs, and you had just moved back to the San Joaquin Valley. You'd been working for the LA Times, and you had been working in LA. And I think you, you mentioned this conversation that you'd had with your editors about wanting to be a foreign correspondent and go somewhere really different, far away, but instead, they sent you back to a place you know so well, the San Joaquin Valley. And you said to the audience, well, you know, it wasn't a foreign land, but it was a place that is so different from any other place in the United States that it is in some ways like going to another country, which is what my friend Mike in the first episode said. You know, you come over the grapevine and you're in a totally different place. And you said that, and it sort of helped shape my view of the San Joaquin Valley. I'd only been here a couple of years, probably. Do you remember that? Yeah, well, you got a, you have a very good memory, because uh, I, I, re I don't remember that particular uh, night, but I 
I remember talking about that. Um, yeah, I, you know, I was going to apply for the Jerusalem Bureau and, and, and report from the Middle East, and I ended up in Fresno. Um, but when you cross that, that divide coming from Southern California to the, the valley, you go, you know, down the mountain, you're really crossing a Mason-Dixon line. I mean, it's a whole different place. And um, the valley isn't just, well, it's geographically exiled from the rest of California. But that geographical exile translates into almost a psychological exile as well. And that's what so much, so many of my books have dealt with is why this place feels apart and, and how it's established its own kind of code of doing things, you know, to its detriment in, in large part. It's a, it's, it is a, another place. And you actually said that you tried to treat it that way when you came back as a reporter because you knew it so well from having been born here and having grown up here. You had to look at it as if you were a foreign correspondent. Yeah, I think the writer's voice and that writer's voice that I developed as a journalist and then took it on in, into essays and history and reportage and all that is is it was the voice that helped me to imagine that I was writing to uh, people who weren't from here and I was writing uh, this place as if it was a foreign land. And I was born here. But back then, it still was foreign to me, and it remains foreign to me. You know, I've, I've written more words about the San Joaquin Valley than probably anyone who's ever written uh, about the valley. Um, but there's still things I'm trying to puzzle out, and it's about place. And that's what I loved about your, your series. Um, it, it's examining place, and you're different than me. You came from the outside, and so I was listening. I mean, some of the places you were going to are the very places I had been, you know, 20, 30 years ago. But you brought your own eye to them, okay? And so it was delightful to hear those stories told by someone else. Well, well let's talk about that for a minute because you have an idea of how people perceive place, right? You can perceive place as someone who was born there and lived there their whole lives, and therefore they're linked to it. They're rooted, they're rooted in it as if they were a tree. You know, it's, it's part of their existence. Um, and then there's other ways of, of looking at a place, and one of those is the way I look at the San Joaquin Valley as someone who came here 20 years ago. So do you want to talk about that a little bit? Tell me. Yeah, you know, yeah. I've, I've, I've played with this idea. Um, you know, as, uh, um, I think there's probably other ways of looking at it, but by my count, they're like, they're, there are three basic ways that humans connect to place, and, and each one is a way of living. I mean, the first one is that, well, place is movable. You know, you, you, you can t take home with you and create home wherever your place might, wherever that place might be. And in, in that way, place is kind of no big deal. Losing a place is no big tragedy. Place is not only movable, it's disposable. Then there's that second notion of place, which I think defines your connection to this place. It's the way a historian or a journalist or a social scientist might see it with this kind of disinterested eye. Place becomes your subject, and as a subject, it's kind of separate from your soul, you can live in a place, become a student of it. You find some measure of accord with that place because it is your home and your laboratory. 
but place is never you, and the changes that come to it are never taken personally. You kind of live above that fray. Right. There's some objectivity to the way I'm looking at it versus the way you look at it, which is far more subjective. It is, and that's what I've had to fight, because the third notion of place is one of deep roots and intimacy, a, a direct connection between a person and place right down to the earth. You know, I am bound to this place. You can't separate me from it. And as the land is being remade, for instance, you ask yourself, where is my place? I'm tied to this place, and yet as it abandons itself, its old notion of itself, is it also abandoning me? And so does it allow a place for me to exist? And I guess what I want to explore in, in my books, even as I've gone from Fresno to the whole of California, I'm still exploring the notion that a place is not simply geography, but a spiritual relationship to that geography. And, and I think it's, it's this relationship that gets lost as the land becomes transformed. So, yeah, what do you mean by the place has abandoned you? Well, your old haunts, okay, they're gone. I used to hang out in the fig orchards of northwest Fresno. They don't exist anymore. Um, I planted a fig tree in the last house I had just to remind myself of the figs. So the the places change. And, you know, you could go back east. I mean, I lived back east. I went to school back east. And you could talk to folks who can tr- who can basically traverse the land and say, this is the land exactly how my grandfather and great-grandfather saw it. It's been preserved. This place is constantly being remade. And, and that's what I'm exploring all the time is, is those revisions. And they're, they're like gashes in the land. And does it affect you on a personal and a spiritual level? It, it does. I'm trying to figure out okay, if, if it's changed this much in my lifetime, where's it headed? And I have to say, I feel the same way as someone who's lived here 20 years. I actually, and I wonder if you feel this way too, but I feel very defensive about this place, especially in terms of the way it's changing. I look at the warehouses that, you know, house all the stuff that we order online and all of the suburbs that are being built. And there's something that's so heartbreaking about that as it as this place becomes so much more homogenous like the rest of America. And it it also makes me think back to this comment I, I told you that people have made to me about the San Joaquin Valley that, you know, having heard the podcast, they've said to me, Oh, this is this is your love letter to the San Joaquin Valley. And I find that response so challenging. First of all, it seems superficial, but also it's not a love letter. It's more of a a defensiveness, like a, a little manifesto that I'm sharing with the world that, you know, it's part of California. It matters to California. And the people who work here work so hard and have really, as we've seen in the podcast, interesting life. So it's this sort of defensiveness that I get about the land not being cared for or people not paying attention to the beauty that's here, maybe beneath the rubble, maybe beneath, you know, the ugliness, but the beauty that is here. And it it kind of makes me angry. And I wonder if you have that same response or if for you it's more of a a feeling of jadedness about the loss of so many things in the valley. Well, I don't think 
the, the, the series has been a love letter. I think it's got way more layers than that. And um, so uh, if someone told me that about my work, I'd be upset, actually. But um, I think when you have this immediacy uh, that you gain by being so close to a place, you, you also have the, the, the downside that you bring sometimes too much heat and too much passion to the subject. And so um, you're always trying to get some distance so you have a perspective and a kind of a rain, a rain on your anger and maybe even a check on your heart as you're writing it. And yet, um, as I've moved beyond journalism to other forms, um, you, you, you're allowed to kind of declare that to the, to the reader that... Um, that it's a messy thing, okay? That, 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 that when you dig your heels into native ground, it can be messy. This also reminds me of a comment you made right before we came in here about how stories about the indigenous people who lived here did not, we, we don't hear those stories. And these are, the, so what does it feel like for indigenous people to live in a place that has been taken from them? This is the problem. Um, when a place is conceived in genocide, as California was, um, the whole original storytellers are gone. Their story's been erased. So for me, the story of this place, not just the valley, but California itself, uh, for me, it begins with Soroyan. I mean, that's, that's my original source. And, you know, I had the fortune as a 15, 16-year-old kid of going to visit him. Um, and, um, and, and, and seeing his life and, you know, and, and sometimes I'd ask a, a decent question and I'd get an interesting answer from him. And we're, we're talking about the writer, William Soroyan. Right. That's right. And so, so yeah, there's, there's, and, you know, so each, each, each writer borrows from the previous writer. So there was Soroyan and then who else? I mean, you've got Haslam coming next. He, sadly, he just passed. Um, then you've got my generation of folks, you know. So, yeah, we're, we're all trying to build on this narrative. This place is, so much of it, you have to dig in, actually in the soil to kind of figure out because this is a place that wants to forget its past. And it, its past is a very violent one. I mean, what was done to the land here has never been done to this large of a piece of earth ever in human history. The change, the, the transformation that took place here, the, the erasing of the lakes and the marshes, the flattening of the earth, the moving of that snow melt, you know, from the original rivers to dams and ditches and, and, you know, and canals and, and, um, and then the engineering and the kind of agriculture that was done uh, you know, ge geologists say this is the most altered landscape by human hand in human history. And we don't know that story. That's the story I've, I've been trying to tell. And then when you see the people who came here originally, I mean, most of them came from the Confederate South and they brought with them their racial animus, okay? And so this place became um, a place where essentially we transplanted the plantation here. And so you had restricted real estate covenants and redlining and a kind of racism that still exists today. We've never really wiped it out of our, you know, our, our kind of DNA. So 
as you were exploring all these places, yeah, it was the other California, and there there was aspect to that. There was there was a, a love letter, but you were also exploring the depths of this stuff. You went to Fairmead, you saw how African Americans came to Fairmead as the promised land, and yet they were they were locked out of the city of Madera. They went there, and now and Chowchilla and Chowch and Chowchilla was a, a, a very racist place. Okay, um, and now those that are left are fighting for water to survive because as the almond orchards are surrounding them and putting their wells deeper, they're sucking dry their more shallow residential wells. So when you hear the phrase, the other California, what comes to mind for you? Um, I think the aspects of this place that are singular, that are anomalies. Um, You know, when I did my first book, I was, it was about my father's murder, and I was looking into the, the place. Um, I was trying to explain how Fresno had, you know, these, you know, it, it would come up time and again in these national stories of, like, corruption. You know, the top half of the police department in the 1920s during Prohibition was indicted for being involved with a bunch of bootleggers. I mean, it was national news. Our opium dens were the busiest opium dens in, in America. Our, our, our um, dens of prostitution, you know, were run by the police department. In fact, the, the chief of police, Hank Morton, in the 1970s was married to the biggest madam in Fresno. So I was trying to figure out, what is it about this place that's the other? I mean, it has this kind of, um, this kind of arrested sense of propriety, what's right. It doesn't operate by the same rules as other places. And I think that goes back to this kind of geographical exile, which creates a psychic exile, which creates a kind of ethical exile. That's really interesting. What what makes the other California exiled in the first place? Is it because of the people who live here, the farmland? Is it? Yeah. Mm-hmm. I think it's, a, first of all, were a separate valley surrounded by mountains. The people who came here, like my people, were often leaving genocide and pogroms and all this kind of stuff. They didn't want government, okay? Government to them meant massacres and genocide. So they come here and they want to be free and liberated. They don't want government. And the folks from the South, they didn't want government either. So you had this weird mixture from the get-go. And then refugees. Refugees and everything else. Who have been through, as you said, genocides and horror and wars and and so they've all shaped, but that's their relationship to a government it is and they, so so they didn't want government and we're still having that fight today and um they they want to be left alone um and it's the reason why we after 35 40 years of struggling to bring clean air here we have failed you know we're, we're these last couple of years we're breathing you know, some of it has to do with the wildfires, but some of it has to do with the dairies, these huge dairies. We're breathing the worst air in the country still. It's not a place that I necessarily want my children to live in. My daughter's already left, and my son's made too. The poverty, it's got some of the most concentrated poverty, if not the most, in the United States. So there's all there's all these things that are, that are broken about it, and, and, I, and I now realize why as a kid, Soroyan told me that 
He loved and hated this place. I mean, he lived half the year in Paris, and yet he'd come back to Fresno every year around fair time to go play the ponies and watch the ponies at the Fresno Fair. But then also, he came in summer because of the fruits, okay, and the crops. And so side by side, we see these plantations of cotton and, and these huge farms, and yet we still have places like Fowler and Selma and Kingsburg, where the river runs through the land and it's beautiful and it's romantic. It's kind of a Jeffersonian way of living. I remember going out and visiting Moss Masamoto not too long ago after after the 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 smoke of this last wildfire lifted and we just had this pleasant lunch beside his 100-year-old vines and the raisins were still out on the ground and this was the way his father had farmed and it's the way my grandfather and my father had farmed before they left the farm and i envied him because we sold the farm before i was born and he still had his farm and he was passing it on to his children and that is the love of this place beside the hate of this place it's the dichotomy that you've you've just described that makes many of us think, okay, well, if I left, there are things about it that I would really, really miss that don't exist anywhere else in the United States. And meanwhile, there are good reasons to leave because of all the, the problems you've mentioned. Is there something about mythologizing this place that intrigues you? I remember when the first episode of this podcast came out, I sent it to you. And you were very kind about it, but you also expressed a sentiment of, you know, let's make sure we don't mythologize this place, which hopefully I haven't. But it got me thinking a lot about mythologizing places and what that means and whether myths can actually help a place or hurt a place. Because in some ways, as I've said, my sort of effort with this podcast is to let people see some of the beauty, and and much of the beauty comes out of sort of awful stories it, it that does. you know where people have had to deal with, as we've said, genocide and and other things. But but beauty has emerged, and and that's what I've wanted people to see. So I think well, if people don't have some idea of the beauty, which sometimes equals myth, what do they have to hold on to? That's right. I mean, the valley is kind of an ugly beauty. That's how I've described it. Um, I've tried to defang the myth of this place in California. That was what the Dreamland was all about, was looking at the sale of the myth to bring people here, the myth of the orange that created Los Angeles. Okay. Um, so myths are powerful things, and, and I think we constantly have to explore them, ex explore... Um, their power of allurement, their power to transform, their power to imagine, okay? We invented this place based on a myth, okay? And, and the myth began with the gold rush. Um, and so as you're examining all that, you're also seeing that the, 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 the power of that myth can lead to tragedy, and that's where we're at now, because now we have a force called climate change. It's bearing down on us. And yet we still are embracing this myth, 
of California that we can continue to grow. We could spread the farmland even more. I mean, in the 10 driest years in California that we've had, we've grown permanent farm acres in the San Joaquin Valley by nearly 700,000 acres. That's kind of a communal madness, ignoring this, this beast that's kind of bearing down on us. So yes, myth is powerful. And what I meant when I wrote you was just that that um, it's the beauty in what you're doing. You're going and visiting. Like you went to Huron. You visited Ray Leon, the mayor there, who's doing these incredible things. Uh, you know, he's also butting up against the myth that brought so many people across the border to Huron. Knife fight city. Picking the crops. And now... What did they do when those crops disappear? He's trying to remake that place. He's trying to remake the myth of Huron. So what is it that you, as a native son of the San Joaquin Valley, what is it that you want people to know about the other California that you could summarize in a couple sentences because they could go read your books and they should if they haven't. But if you were just talking to a friend who had never been here, what would you want them to know about this place? What is it for you? What is the sort of underlying theme that makes it home to you, makes it the other California to you? I don't know. I feel sometimes a kind of alienation from the place I think what makes it home to me is family and the history. You know, my father's blood was spilled here. He was murdered. Uh, my grandfather had raisin, raisin, the crop, he called it the crop, the raisin ranches here. Um, so all that keeps me rooted, and yet there's not a day goes by that I think I, I threaten to leave this place, you know, just for the sake of my lungs, if nothing else. So I, I don't know. I think um, it, it's, there's not a two-sentence way to describe this place. It's, uh, it's extraordinary. I've been privileged to tell its stories. It really is a foreign land. It's a, it's a, it's a unique canvas, okay? Um, and that's because of all the people who have come here. And so I'm still trying to, to figure it out and I'll probably die trying to figure it out. I think you just did that. I think you just did summarize it beautifully. Yeah, I don't know. Well, thank you so much, Mark. Yeah, it's hard. And that's the other California. Next week, we go to the small rural town of Taft, where a close relationship to the oil industry has residents worried about where they fit into California's green energy plans. And a high school culinary course connects students to each other through local recipes. Oaxacan, Native American, Samoan. This episode was produced by me, Alice Daniel. Mixing and sound design by Rob Spate, with editorial help from Polly Stryker. Web support from Alex Burke. Technical support from Don Weaver. Joe Moore is our president and general manager. Special thanks to the KVPR news team. Madi Bolaños, Sarith Hawk, Carrie Klein, and Kathleen Schock. And musician Omar Nure. 
You've been listening to The Other California. <clears throat> Excuse me. Don't worry, that won't be in the podcast. <laughs> or maybe it will. Send me this version. Go ahead. <laughs>